Minori, I've got one other thing for you to do this morning. You want to come here for a sec? I think you can find it pretty easily. Do you want to find our artifact for us today? I'll show you what it is. See that right there? Why don't you pull that thing out? Yeah, it's as big as you are. What does that look like to you? Any ideas? It looks like the, like the outside of the door. It does look like an outside of a door. You're exactly right. Looks like a doorpost, doesn't it? And when I turn it around like this, so that everybody can see, all of a sudden it really starts to look like a doorpost. And a very specific doorpost. Do you know the story that goes along with this doorpost and this red stuff? What is this red stuff? It is sheep's blood. She, you know, she's totally unprompted here. I didn't. This is all off the top of the head here for her. Yeah, it's sheep's blood. And do you know the story? What story does that come out of? Okay. Yeah, this has to do with the Exodus. When Moses, remember this now? When Moses asked the Israelites to do some things that God wanted them to do in order to make sure that the angel of death would pass over them and would only get those from Egypt. We're going to read this in just a second. Thank you very much. And thanks for playing the piano today, too. That was nice. Yeah, it's a pretty well-known story. And it is perfect for discussing this particular thing on Remembrance Day. The fact is, is that in our time of ease, it's easy to forget the sacrifices by others in order that we might hold on to the freedoms that we enjoy. It's easy for us to think that the rest of the world and the rest of history is like what we enjoy. Like we just think this is the way things are for everybody all the time. When, when Ron says, any of you grew up in here in a country where there's war in your back door and... Uh, and when you're conscripted into the military, the fact that that doesn't happen here and hardly anyone raises their hands is unique in the world. Like in most places, people have to endure those kinds of things and we do not. History is often nothing more than the stories of those who either took away the freedom of others or the stories of those who had their freedoms taken away. We just happen to live in a time when this is not our experience And because we know nothing else, we know nothing besides a relative freedom and ease, it's easy for us to take it all for granted, hardly giving a thought to the price our freedom cost others. So what I want to do right now is I want us to just take a moment and in silence to pray and to thank God for the privileges that we have, but maybe more than that, thank him for those who have sacrificed their lives so that you and I can sit here today in the freedom that we have to worship and to praise. There's no one going to burst in here and tell us we can't do this. Nobody in here is going to be hauled off to jail today because they're worshiping Jesus. Nobody's even going to challenge the fact that we have the freedoms in Canada that we have today. And I'm grateful for that. So why don't we just stop for a moment and, uh, and reflect and pray. Lord, we know that we, des- that we owe uh, those who have gone before us a lot more 
than just a few moments of silence. In fact, in the same way that we owe you what we owe you because of Jesus, there's some sense in which we owe them a debt as well. And you're the one who created people with hearts that were willing to go and make sacrifices that we could live here the way that we do. And so we praise you for that and we thank you for them. We'd ask that you'd bless those families who maybe generations now down the road are still influenced in some way by the loss of a loved one. Father, we pray that you would bring peace to our world, that you would encourage through all kinds of means human beings making peaceful choices rather than those choices that lead to war. And right now, Father, as I say that, I know that there are people being killed at this moment somewhere around the world in some kind of militaristic act of violence. And we pray, God, that you bring those instances to an end. Thank you ultimately for Jesus, who will one day unite us all together in your peace. It's through him that we pray. Amen. I'm guessing that if you're like me, that it's difficult for you to read stories of slavery. It's difficult to hear about the inhumanity with which human beings have the capacity to treat other human beings. But because the internet is what it is, because it is so easy to get on and read these stories, that's what I spent some time doing in the last week. Reading stories about slavery. And in some cases, I read stories about slaves and the ways that they were treated. I read stories about slaves and what it meant for them to be emancipated. I read stories by those who held slaves. Um, And because it wasn't all that long ago that slavery took place in a dramatic way, of course, in the United States, in the southern portion of the states, we actually have unbelievable records. Like, you probably haven't done this, but if you go online and you look for these stories, they are there because people were able to read and write and record. There were even, of course, photographs taken. Some of the slaves lived into the the 20th century. And so there were photographs taken of slaves, elderly slaves. There are photographs of slaves taking off their shirts and showing the, the scar tissue on their backs from where they stood at whipping posts and were beaten for doing whatever as slaves. Their masters felt the freedom to do that. And these are amazing stories. I, I, I mean, I was so struck by it. The fact is that when I read this, I'm probably like you, filled with grief. When I hear about and read about lynchings, the ways that people were mocked because of their race and enslaved. I mean, it just... Um, There was so much pain that has been inflicted on others. And then when I think about the fact that much of this pain that was inflicted was actually inflicted by people who claimed the name of Jesus. Like people claimed the name of Christ and then inflicted that kind of agony on others. Well, I'm not going to go into all kinds of detail about that. You can read it for yourself. But I do want to read a few lines 
from a former slave. This fellow's name was Isaac Griffin. And 160 years ago, he made his way to Canada. And I think it was through the underground the underground railroad passageway that people were able to come and be here. I think this is how he got here. Um, this isn't overly dramatic. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't flower things up in a huge way. He just gives a few details uh, of his feelings upon living in our country. And here's what he said. It's above my language to tell how overjoyed I was on getting into Canada. Nothing harasses a man so much as slavery. There's nothing under the sun so mean. Now listen to this line. I had to think about this line and sort this out. But, but I, if you think about it, here's interesting words. He says, after a man is dead, they won't let him rest. And I think what he means is, you become a slave, and it's like you died, but with no rest. After a man is dead, they won't let him rest. It's a horrible thing to think of, the way in which slaves are brought up. There's not a man born who can represent slavery so bad as it is. But now I felt as free and light as a feather. My whole burden was lifted. Now I can get up and go to my own work without being beaten and bruised by another. Things are not perfect, but I no longer live constantly afraid of the whipping post. I don't worry that I will be accused of something I did not do. I do not worry that I will be sold to someone even worse than my master or that my family will be sold away. My only burden is for my children and what they have to go through. I don't know how they will ever be set free. Here, the law is the same for one man as for another. So when he left, he obviously broke away and left his family behind. And there, I, I read numerous stories of people who were like this, who had a chance to escape, and so they did, but they left behind their spouse. They left behind their children hoping that one day they'd be able to go back and do something and maybe bring them out of slavery. But in many cases, it simply didn't happen. And they never saw their families again. And in many cases, they didn't even know what happened to them. Never even knew what happened to their family members, those whom they loved, after they left. Well, it's, it's often the case that we make kind of an automatic jump. Preachers do this. We make an automatic jump from physical slavery to talking about freedom in Christ, and that's totally appropriate. But this morning, for my part, I don't want to do that. Instead, I want to go to the Exodus event, which is not really an event talking about freedom from sin. What the Exodus event is about is people being freed from actual slavery. It's an event in which God looked at what human beings were doing to human beings and he changed the situation for those whom he loved. So we're going to look at kind of three moves this morning. What God sees, what God does, and what we're called to do in response. I want you to turn, if you would, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. 
is what I'll read first. Just so we can kind of get what's happening here with the story. And I want us to see first what God looks at, what God sees. And we read over these words quickly, but they aren't to be read over quickly. They're to be pondered about, thought about. What is it that God himself was feeling? Verse seven, Exodus chapter three. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. And like it's interesting, of course, when he says my people, he means Israel. But God, ultimately, it's all of us are his people. He looks at his people, human beings, and he looks at the way in which they are bound, enslaved to what it means to be human after the fall. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God's going to take them out of their slavery and bless them. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And if you, It's interesting. If you look up in the Old Testament what was going on with those people, they were participating in a, an idolatry of just the rankest kind. Like child sacrifice, for example, was common among these people. The ways in which they treated others was unbelievable. And God sends Israel in amongst them. These are the ones who lose their land. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, he says to Moses. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So you can, just, you can see what God's concern is here, his compassion for those whom he loves. He is concerned for hurting people. We often uh, focus on the fact that God created a world in which there's suffering, and oftentimes we hold him accountable for the fact that there is suffering in the world. And I suppose in some sense that's true, but I'm convinced that if God would have been able to make a different kind of world in which there was no suffering whatsoever, and that was a better world, that that's the kind of world he would have made. So I I think, and I know this is a long story, but I think that suffering somehow has to be there in order for things to be the best they can actually be. And you might think, how in the world can that be the case? But I'm not going to say anything foolish like, trust me, I've got all this nailed down. I'm not going to say that. But I do think that the world is a better place even because of the suffering. But then when God realizes that that's what his world is that he's made and the freedom that's there that allows for that suffering, then he does something about it. God ultimately wants that suffering and that hurting alleviated. And so he sees the hurting, and I'm convinced that God himself hurts. So that's the first kind of move here. That's what I think God sees. But then, what does God do? Turn to Exodus 12. We'll start with verse 29 here. And this is simply the story of God deciding that he's going to set people free. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Wow. Pharaoh to prisoner. 
Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. I guess. Man, I mean, imagine the wailing that you would hear. And this is in a, a culture where like, there's, no, there's no planes going overhead. Nobody's got their television on and has that kind of noise happening. There aren't cars running by on the freeway. When they went to bed at night, silence. Maybe some cattle lowing in the distance. And all of a sudden, you hear the cattle lowing in the distance turn into the wailing of the mothers. And you can just hear that sound waft through the air as there are screams of agony taking place throughout a whole nation because of their loss. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said, and go, and also bless me. And you can imagine that he wants to be blessed because he too has lost a son. And his whole nation is in agony. And on the one hand, we might think, well, they deserve this. And God is the one who's bringing the punishment on them. I get all of that. But nonetheless, this is a a cry of pain and suffering and agony that is common to what it means to be human. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we'll all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added, and they carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold for clothing, and the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and they also drove, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought into Egypt, they, out of Egypt, they baked uh, loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was, was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelites... People lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And there's a sense in which what we're doing today is keeping a kind of vigil in our land. They, of course, kept their vigil with the Passover. Because on this day, There was freedom that God brought to the people. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. That is a serious kind of request. Consecrate the firstborn, whether human or animal, whatever it is, to me. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv you are leaving when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and all of those otherites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord, and he continues. Skip down to verse 11. 
After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with the lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come when your son asks you, and this is maybe the poignant moment, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both the people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and the symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. Wow. Not for a moment to be taken lightly. The emancipation of humanity. When it comes to desiring the freedom of people, God takes this seriously. And it's easy for us to read this story because we've read it so many times and we heard about it in Bible, uh, Bible school. We learned it growing up. It's easy for us to just take all of this for granted. But what if you were one of those who was set free? What if they could have recorded their stories? What if they would have said, this was what it was like for me in slavery. Let me show you the wounds on my back. And now I'm set free. All of a sudden, this wouldn't be just some Bible story. If we could see those people and their faces on the internet, suddenly it becomes real and we wouldn't take it so much for granted. The last few days, I've been able to spend some time with Dave and Sheila Sandmeyer up at their place near St. Paul, Alberta. What a blessing. Like it was just great for me to spend this time with Dave and Sheila. They were wonderful hosts and hostesses. They just treated me so well, and I just spent some time with them. It was, it was great. I got to see the family farm, and Dave took me around and showed me all the parts of the farm and all the area around the farm and all the farms that he knew around there, and he told me story after story after story about what it was like to be a young man and growing up there, and it was, it was precious. But the best story, or one of the best stories, was about the founding of the farm. And there was a family from France uh, who came with four sons, four brothers, who came and homesteaded that piece of property. That was in 1907. In 1914, three of those brothers went off to war. One stayed home. Of the three, within a short period, two of them were killed side by side, died almost next to each other on the battlefield. The third was injured and eventually was sent home. The reason that Dave Sandmeyer has the farm that he does is because out of those four brothers, there was only one who stayed behind and he was the only one left to actually work the land after the two were killed and the other one came back injured. He couldn't do it himself and so he actually wrote a letter to Dave Sandmeyer's grandfather who was in Missouri and had just married this other fellow's sister and said, why don't you come up here and help me with this farm? I just can't do this now by myself. And so Dave's grandmother 
or grandfather, I should say, came up to Canada and homesteaded here, and that's why the Sandmeyers are where they are. And here's what was so obvious to me. Dave, I don't think, was thinking at all about Remembrance Day. He might have been, but I don't think he was. He was just telling me the story. But the story has stayed in the family and is so significant because his very existence, the existence on which he absolutely depends for his whole history, started with four brothers, two of whom go off to Europe and are killed making a sacrifice for Canada. And because that story or I should say because that event was real and took place and means so much for them, they don't forget the story. They keep telling it. Because when there's a story like that that is so meaningful, that counts for everything, you don't just forget it. So let me make a big jump this morning. What is it that we're called to do in response to all that God has done for us? And I would say this. God gives us the responsibility of freeing slaves. Now Jesus is the one who freed the slaves ultimately. Jesus is the one who gave his life that you and I could be set free. But we have a call on us by God to participate in his work of freeing slaves. And slavery comes in all kinds of different forms. Sometimes slavery, of course, comes in the form of sin. And we call people out of sin to become what God wants them to be. Sometimes slavery comes in the form of actual slavery. Sometimes it's a slavery of poverty. Sometimes it's a slavery of greed. Sometimes it's a slavery of not having water. Sometimes it's a slavery of illness. It could be the slavery of a birth defect. Like there are so many ways in which human beings are enslaved. And we have a, a, a responsibility and a call to bring the kind of salvation and protection and security that God has brought to us. Not only through Jesus, but even through the privileges that we have of living in a place like we live. We shouldn't, for a moment, take the privileges we have for granted and just forget these stories and act like we can just function without those who've gone before us. And it's so easy for us to take all of this for granted when really we're called to respond by helping to free those who are in fact enslaved in all kinds of ways. I want you to turn now to Matthew. And we'll be done here after we read a text here. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus tells those who are being sent out to do exactly the same kind of things that he does. And he tells them, I want you to go and heal those who have illnesses or heal the blindness. I want you to raise the dead, heal the sick, I want you to do all kinds of things for those who are hurt in various ways. And the whole point is that these people are enslaved. They find themselves enslaved by all kinds of things that hold them down within their humanity of which only God can ultimately set them free. And so you and I are called in response to what it is that God has done to carry on the ministry that God calls us to. So today... You've been set free. You find yourself free, not only from sin, but living in an incredibly free place. And I want to just say, don't for a moment just, just take that for granted. Because it is way 
bigger than that. And we have to, in some way, acknowledge the wonderful things that God has done in putting us in a position of privilege. And then ask the question, what are we gonna do with the privileges that we have received? I'm grateful that our country today takes the time to think about those who've gone before us and who've done things, made incredible sacrifices, the ultimate sacrifice to allow us to exist in freedom. And because of that, we have some responsibility to carry on a way of life that honors them. We need to carry on a way of life that honors God and Christ and what it is that he's done. So don't forget, but instead remember and respond to what God has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, through Exodus and ultimately through Jesus, you've set your people free. You've set us free. And Lord, we don't for a moment want to forget that or take it for granted or just push on and act like it didn't happen. So help us not to. And in our remembering, help us to to answer the call to help set those people free in our world who are enslaved in all kinds of ways. And you give us freedom and power to bless and influence their lives. Help us to do so. We pray through Jesus. Amen.